Hey guys, before we get started, I wanted to mention that the Cork Report podcast is sponsored by our friends at Petrea Plus, a company that wants you to rethink your oak to showcase your fruit instead of your barrel program. Need high quality French oak barrels? Petrea Plus works with Tonellerie Caduce Barrels. Interested in the benefits of both oak and stainless steel? They have tightened hybrid barrels for that. Want to bring some oak flavor to your wine, beer, or cider without the expense? Check out Wine Sticks Barrel Alternatives. Everything Petrea Plus offers has been handpicked with cool and cold climate wine styles in mind. Learn more at PetreaPlus.com. That's PetreaPlus.com. And since you might not be sure how to spell that, that is P-E-T-R-A-E-A Plus.com. Shut up and sit down. Welcome to the Cork Report Podcast. My name is Len Thompson. Um, normally, this is when my co-host, Carlo DeVito, would chime in and say, and I'm Carlo DeVito. He's not here today. Um, he apparently is busy running uh, his three tasting rooms for his winery in the Hudson Valley and also uh, traveling quite a bit in the Northeast for his book publishing work. So he won't be with us this week. Um, hopefully, we'll get him back towards the end of the summer when things start to slow down a little bit, but before harvest ramps up. Um, to those of you who have been harassing me on Instagram and Facebook and Twitter and email about the lack of episodes, you're absolutely right. There's obviously plenty of stuff going on in the East Coast wine these days, um, from the insane weather and rain down in the mid-Atlantic to a couple of wineries here on Long Island that have been sold, one to another winery and one to um, actually a winery from Mexico. And um, hopefully, we'll, we'll, I'm actually hoping to get uh, Kareem Masood from Pominock Vineyards on the podcast soon. Um, his, his family's winery uh, recently just purchased Palmer Vineyards, which um, is, is pretty big news in these parts. Um, and obviously it's going to change a lot of things, both for Palmer and for Pominock. And I'm hoping that we'll, I can get Kareem on soon. Um, again, you're just listening to me today. Uh, I just got back yesterday afternoon from Watkins Glen, where I was judging the 2018 New York Wine Classic, um, which was a great experience. I can't really even say uh, enough about how great, how well it was run. Um, and I'm actually pretty happy about the results, um, especially within context of what was there. Um, but uh, before we get to that, just want to talk a bit about a quick visit I did to one winery in the Finger Lakes while I was up there. Um, I left the classic judging started Tuesday morning, so I got up early Monday um, to A get off the island and through the Bronx before traffic got stupid and also in B to spend some time with my friend Rick Rainey at Ford Cellars on the east side of Seneca Lake. The last time I visited Rick um, on the property, the winery hadn't even been built and there wasn't a single vine in the ground. They were actually just finishing up clearing the land. Um, we, we spent some time walking where the vineyard was going to be, but um, just getting back up there a few years later, it's amazing to see the progress that they've already made. Um, they're even going to have a small crop of fruit off of their estate vineyard this year, which is pretty exciting. It was way too hot when I was there. It was like in the mid-90s um, to spend much time in the vineyard, but we did taste through the current re um, current releases, both the Riesings and the Pinot Noirs. And we talked about a, a variety of things, but uh, including their experience growing organic in the vineyard, but without being dogmatic about it. Having to spray one time this year uh, a non-organic treatment for black rot, and that being okay, 
because 90% organic is better than 0%. Um, the Japanese beetles that they're dealing with on the southern edge of their estate vineyard, um, and also finding new interesting vineyard sites and working with the growers that are already there to improve their practices. Um, I'm really hoping to have Rick on soon to talk about some of these vineyards they're working with now. Um, they started with just a couple when they first launched, but now they're working with 17 separate growers for 2018, plus their own vineyards coming on. So they're really kind of taking a, a burgundy approach to, you know, parcel by parcel, and they're, they're doing a lot of single vineyard stuff there. It's pretty interesting. Um, but one of the most interesting things we chatted about and something that, again, I'm only hoping to get him on the podcast to talk about is some of the things he's seeing trying to sell truly dry Riesling in North America. As many of you may or may not know, a lot of the dry Riesling you see on the shelves um, and at Finger Lakes wineries, even if it has the word dry on it, it isn't necessarily dry. There's no standard for it. Um, and that makes it difficult for people who really are making dry Riesling. The, uh, the forage wines top out at 0.3% uh, residual, so they're, they're really dry. Um, and the challenge is when they, they're taking those wines into the marketplace, people still assume that Rieslings are sweet, and it can make and it's just a challenge for them. So um, I'm really hoping to get him on soon. We can talk about that. It'd be super interesting. But yeah, we'll get into to that more when I can get Rick on. Um, but just in general, uh, if you haven't visited Forge Cellars, um, if you're in the Finger Lakes, it's absolutely a place to check out. Um, they, they don't have a sign on the road. They don't have a, a public tasting room. You have to go online um, to ForgeCellars.com, and they have a couple seatings of, of tastings that are, are led often by Rick himself um, or, or assistant winemaker Alex, or maybe if Justin, the winemaker's around, he'll, he'll do it too. Um, but it's really worth the effort to go online and do it. And uh, and it is true, they don't have a sign. So just to, if, if you punch in Ford Cellars into your navigation, at least my navigation found it. So that, that'll work out fine for you. Um, I did leave with a couple of bottles of Riesling, the, the 2017 Classique, which um, if, you're, if you're not familiar with this, this is their quote unquote entry level. They have, they have two main levels of Riesling there and Pinot. Uh, the Classique, which is their... Um, main line, the one they make the most of. And then they also have the Le Allier, which is sort of their way of doing reserve. Um, they also do single vineyard bottlings, but the, those change year to year. The, the Classique and Le Allier are fairly consistent um, season to season. Um, so I, I left with a bottle of the 17 Classique and the 17 Peach Orchard Vineyard, which uh, was really super cool. Um, brought them back home to Long Island and hope to taste them soon. So let's talk a little bit about the New York Classic. Um, it's probably important to start off by saying that I've had a, a contentious, yeah, that's, that's probably a good word for it, relationship with the Classic over the years, um, competitions in general, really, um, but this one in particular. Uh, I've written a lot about it, posted a lot about it on various social media platforms. Um, one story from back in probably 2010, I actually looked for it. Online, but I, I don't think it made it. it um, I don't think it came across in one of my um, blog migrations, which might be a good thing because uh, my co-editor at the time, Evan Dawson, and I were pretty harsh on all competitions. Um, it got a lot of attention, um, but yes, it did come up <laughs> when I was up in the Finger Lakes this week uh, more than once. Um, but it was never in a contentious way. Um, it was more like, hey, aren't you the guy who wrote that story all those years ago about saying you're never going to judge competitions? 
Yes, that was me. Um, and for anyone who wants to ask me why I judged this year after everything I've said, it's really pretty simple. I wanted to. I wanted to see how the competition was run. I wanted to know how many wines each judge is asked to taste. I wanted to see if I'd be the most critical judge in the room and also see, just get a general sense of what wineries are submitting and what wines they're submitting. Um, like I said, it was a great experience. I'd absolutely do it again. In fact, I hope I get to do it again and that this podcast and some of the stuff I'm planning to write about it don't disqualify me. Um, I know people who don't judge wine competitions might not, might think, they might think this, this is funny, but judging is a lot of work. Um, the table I was assigned to tasted... I think at least 140 wines the first day. Um, and, you know, we took a, a short break for lunch, but it basically it was from nine to four or so. Um, it was kind of self-paced. So, you know, I, I never felt rushed at any point, but, um, you know, it's, it's a lot. And then, uh, and then yesterday morning we tasted 40 more wines, the wines that were deemed good enough to move into the best of round and eventually resulted in the Governor's Cup for the quote-unquote, best wine in New York, which was won by a wine that absolutely deserved it on the day. Um, Cuca Spring Vineyards, 2017 Gewürztraminer. I thought that wine was a knockout. Um, so congratulations to the, the Wilberger family and to August Imel, the winemaker. Um, great job. Um, but, I, but like I said, it, it was work. It was definitely not pure joy all day tasting wines. Uh, it might, might be partly in my head, quite honestly, but I feel like my tongue is sore today. And I, I'm not even joking. Like, I feel like, you know, I'm just drinking water and water and water. Um, but like most any other wine tasting experience, there were the good wines, the bad wines, and then unfortunately some really ugly, ugly wines. Um, but the cool thing was the diversity of New York wines was decidedly, it was up in our faces. It was de- decidedly in our faces. Um, some flights were fairly easy to judge. You know, um, I'm pretty familiar with things like dry Riesling and Merlot. I know what good New York, good to great examples of New York Merlot taste like. Um, so those were actually fairly easy. You know, it's, it's still important to give each wine its time, but you know, you, you kind of know what, what's good and what's not. What was more challenging for me, at least personally, and I think for a lot of people in the room, um, cause there were, there were a lot of, of new judges in the room, um, with, with the new leadership at the New York Wine and Grape Foundation. One of the things they did was, excuse me, they, uh, they brought in a lot of new judges this year, um, with, with like with fresh palates who haven't done it before, and um, I think for a lot of us there were flights that were very much outside of our comfort zone. So it made it a little bit more challenging to to have context and to know what's good. Um, I, th- I think ultimately, I think we all did. I mean, I, I tasted a bunch of the wines that other guys, you know. After each flight, some of us would go from table to table just, just to, to taste some of the some of the highlights and some of the lowlights, to be honest. But um, we had some really cool flights that you know I thought were cool. Some people might not have thought they were as cool, but um, you know, uh, my particular table started off with uh, a flight of red hybrids. We tasted nine different ones, but they they kind of ran ran the gamut. Um, we we, di- we didn't have any of the any of the Minnesota. Um, Grapes like like Marquette, that was actually a separate flight that my table didn't get assigned. But we did taste Deshaunic and Chancellor and Bacon Noir and Chambersan and Marechal Foch and Leon Malo, Coro Noir, Noiré, and then in that in that group of nine wines, the the dryness level varied from bone dry on the front end to around two percent residual sugar, 
which was another wrinkle in kind of kind of trying to taste through the, this flight um, as a group, and then as actually as individuals, individuals, and then as, as a group. So what we would do is we would sit down, we would taste quietly for a period of time until we were all done, you know, assigning what we thought the, the medal should be personally, and then we 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 compared notes as a team, and then ultimately we decided um, what, what the, the final medal was for that wine. Um, but anyway, so the, the we had some that were bone dry, zero RS, all the way up to two percent, and you know I think some of you are probably going out two percent. That's a lot for you know a red wine, but you have to keep in mind it's not really that weird when you're dealing with with these red hybrids because some of them have such high acid that you actually almost want a little bit of that in there just to kind of cut that astringency a little bit. Um, but yeah, so that's how we started our day out. Nine high acid reds that were about as disparate and dissimilar as you can imagine. Um, from there, my judging team tasted flights of Merlot, Cab Franc, uh, Vinifera blends, uh, red blends, sorry, um, Cabernet Sauvignon, Vinifera, sparkling whites, Unoak Chardonnay, dry Riesling, medium dry Riesling, sweet Riesling, Sauvignon Blanc. We had a flight of other uh, Vinifera whites. So we had, there was some Gewürztraminer and Pinot Blanc and some other stuff like that. Um, th- then we, we moved into uh, a flight of Tremonet, which um, if you know me at all, you know that one was particularly painful. Uh, then we tasted some native sparkling wines and some late harvest wines. So, th- I mean, that's a pretty diverse array of categories to taste back to back to back to back to back. Um, but it gets even better because I didn't tell you about the weirdest, most wonderful flight. And I, I mean that completely seriously because it was such a cool flight for someone like me who's, you know, let's face it, it's for... If you're somebody like me who is focused on tasting wines up and down the East Coast and into the Midwest, you know, you're not expecting to taste, you know, just a handful of grapes and a handful of styles. You know, you're, you're, you know I'm pretty open-minded. I'll, I'll try anything once. And I always like finding new and interesting things. Um, but so, so we tasted a dozen wines in what was called the blush category. I'm not sure exactly where the sweetness line is between the rosé category and the blush one, but this was by far the hardest group to judge for me. Um, because, you know, it's important to give every wine the same focus and seriousness when you're judging them. You know, you, you, you can't work hard to pick your favorite Merlot or Riesling, but just half-ass it for wines you don't really like or drink in your day-to-day wine drinking life. Um, but the blush flight was really something. Um, it was 12 wines. We had everything from a Merlot, 100% Merlot, that was that had 4% residual sugar, 40, so 40 grams of, of sugar, to a blend of Valvin Muscat with some Minnesota hybrids blended in with 350 grams of residual sugar, which is pretty sweet. Um, sprinkled in between there were grapes like Niagara and Concord and Cayuga, but also some wines that are some grapes that are even less well known, things like Iona, which I've only had once in my life, and Fredonia, which I'm pretty sure I've never had. And, and Svensson Red, which I'm pretty sure I've never had by itself before. Um, but, but we really pushed through that flight, and I even found a couple of wines I liked. Um, there was one I actually liked quite a bit and that I would um, be happy to drink in the right situation. It was a blend of mostly Vidal Blanc and Cayuga White with, with like 7 or 8% Chambersan blended in for color and just a little bit of spice, I think. Um, it was definitely on the sweeter side of how I typically like my rosé, but I drink it again. Um, and I think that now that the results have been announced, I can go ahead and tell you what the, what the wine was. It's um, the Casanova Blush from Owera Vineyards, which is a winery, I think, on Skinny Atlas Lake that um, I knew almost nothing about going in and still clearly know very little about. 
Um, there were actually a couple other fun finds along the way, things that I never would, would pick up at a winery. Um, but because of this experience, I had the opportunity to taste them. Um, there was a sparkling blend of 98% diamond and 2% Catawba from Goosewatch that was really spicy, fruity, floral, not, not so much spicy, more like fruity, floral, sweet, bubbly, in kind of a Moscato kind of way. Um, and then I found this crazy wine that, you know, based that on paper is not something I would ever, ever even put, ever put in my mouth. But um, it was a pink sparkler made with 90% Isabella, which is really an old school New York hybrid. I think it's a hybrid. It might even be a native. I'm not sure. Um, and 10% Niagara. Um, and that, that one's from Penguin Bay Winery. Um, I really, really liked that wine um, to the point that I actually... But unfortunately, both flights really underwhelmed um, pretty badly. Uh, I didn't taste every Cabernet Franc or every Sauvignon Blanc that was in the competition, thankfully. Um, but the ones I tasted were pretty uh, mediocre overall. Um, uh, the people I judged with, both at my table and in the rest of the room, were to a person super passionate about wine and obviously all knew a lot about it. There were sommeliers, restaurateurs, wine consultants, um, people who do wine education, um, people who buy for shops. It was really a, a, a great diverse group of people, um, people in general and also people in terms of, of you know, their wine knowledge. <clears throat> um, and you know, one of my long-lived complaints about competition has been that the average consumer has no idea who these people are you know, behind the, the big red curtain who were handing these medals out. And while obviously the people who's, who see the medals for these wines that we handed out yesterday aren't going to know who the, the 21 judges were, but for those of you who are interested, um, I really have to tell you these were, these were good people who were chosen very well by the organizers. And there were a lot of fresh faces this year. Um, and they all did a great job, I thought. Um, so... Congratulations to everyone involved. It was really a nice, a nice thing. Um, a quick, some quick fire things that come to mind as I, you know, I've been thinking about what I want to say and what I want to write about the situation. Um, first, executive director Sam Filler and his team and his team make what is a hectic, complicated, probably super high stress event for them. They make it seem easy, and you know, they ha- they have it down. They've been, some of the folks on the team have been there a long time, and they, they really know how to do this, and they're doing it great, and they're doing a great job, and they should be commended for it. Um, Duare is still a vile, vile weed. I just don't get that grape. I'm not sure I ever will. Um, Onoke Chardonnay is a category worth watching, but there are a lot of wineries not doing it very well at this point. The one Oak Chardonnay I tasted, the McCary 2015 that won that category this year, was really delicious, and you know how I feel about Oakley Chardonnay in general. It showed really well. Congratulations again to the Wilt Burgers and the winemaker um, at um, August Dimel at Cuca Spring Vineyards for winning the Governor's Cup with that terrific diverse demeanor. Uh, also, congratulations to Constantine Frank Vinifera Wine Cellars for winning the Governor's Cup. I didn't taste very many of the wines that Dr. Frank submitted, um, but I, again, I trust the judges who did, and uh, what I did taste was delicious. Um, I can also understand why some years wines with a little residual sugar or maybe some bubbles win the championship round. Um, after tasting almost 200 wines in a day and a half, um, many of them with high acidity and, and or rough tannins, uh, that little bit of sugar is pretty welcome, I have to admit. Um, that said, because I was aware of that fact, um, I'd like to think that I didn't fall into that trap. And um, the Gerberschmiener that, that won was, if not bone dry, it was right there. 
Um, there's a couple other things I wanted to mention about the classic that might be a bit more controversial. Um, again, hopefully these comments don't disqualify me from taking part next year. First, um, and I think this is really important um, for all involved, um, I think more wineries, including more of the best wineries in the state, should really consider submitting wines next year. I know why they, ha- they didn't this year. I know why some haven't for many years. But I truly think that with Sam running the foundation, um, any real or perceived biases shouldn't be a concern anymore. You know, I was there. I have worried or wondered about those biases myself in the past. I didn't see any evidence of them anywhere. Um, there are, are there are categories that I know would have had different winners if different wineries had submitted. Or maybe I shouldn't say I know that because, you know, I'm just one of 21 judges, but um, I'm pretty confident that that um, some of the outcomes would probably would have been different. <clears throat> but at the same time, and this is probably the more controversial piece, um, hopefully I don't alienate too many people. If you are a winery, and I'm not really sure how to say this in a nice way, so I'm just going to say it, um, and hopefully it comes out okay. Um, if you're a winery that is going to submit wines, I would encourage you not to take the shotgun hunting for medals approach that many of you clearly are. Have a bit more self-awareness. Um, hopefully you know that that oxidized non-vintage Chardonnay, and I don't mean oxidized in any kind of fun way, I mean oxidized, gross, didn't even put it in my mouth when I was tasting it. Actually, that's not true. I, I put everything in my mouth because I was judging. If I was tasting it at a winery, at the winery, I would not have put it in my mouth. Um, you have to know that those wines aren't going to do well. And even, even if you're just hoping to get some metal to be able to sell that wine, you know, you have to know that, first of all, it isn't, it isn't, free, to, isn't free to submit wines. So you're, you're, you're throwing money down the drain. Um, and, and the judges, including myself, now know what all the wines were that we tasted. So you're actually hurting your reputation, at least amongst the small group of people who tasted yesterday and the day before. Um, you're, you're just throwing your money away. And obviously, I'm not going to name the winery who made this Chardonnay. It's, it's not really about that. And it wasn't just that Chardonnay. There were a couple of wines yesterday that were, you know, um, one of the other competitions I judged <clears throat> in the past used uh, commercial viability as part of the criteria. Um, these couple of wines were not commercially viable, in my opinion. Um, so yeah, so I had a great experience. Uh, I'm probably going to write several stories about the, my experience at the New York Wine Classic this year, both on my blog and hopefully elsewhere. But um, <laughs> what I've outlined here is basically just my brain dump um, from what I experienced the last couple of days. Uh, I, I really enjoyed myself, met a lot of great people, both with the foundation and the other judges and the other volunteers. The volunteers really made the, the whole thing work. Um, the backroom people, the pouring the wine, bringing the wine out to us, dealing with us finding corked wines and having to quickly re-pour wine X. Um, without them, this whole thing doesn't happen. <clears throat> and I really, really do hope that the stories I write in this podcast aren't going to disqualify me from doing it next year. Um, so yeah, it was great. Uh, and like I said, Todd isn't here to, to do the news desk today, but I'll be right back with my own little report about some other podcasters who have been speaking with some of my favorite New York winemakers lately. Okay, 
Okay, so like I mentioned, there are a couple podcasts that I quickly want to just mention um, and encourage you to all to subscribe to, or at least go in and pick and choose the episodes that are most interesting to you. Um, I found them super interesting. Um, and even though I'm doing a podcast about East Coast wines and wineries, um, I think it's really awesome that other people are doing it too and doing it better than me, frankly, at this point. Um, the first one is called The Inside Winemaking Podcast with Jim Duane. Uh, Jim is a winemaker in Napa Valley. Um, but because he attended City of Riesling in Michigan earlier this year, he's done a couple interviews with winemakers from this side of the country. Uh, he did one with a trio of Michigan winemakers that's worth checking out. But the most recent episode is with, with uh, August Dimel, a name that you've already heard on this episode a couple times. Uh, he's the guy who made the Governor's Cup winner this year, that Gerverstermainer. Um, during the course of the interview, he talks about his early introduction to wine, his quick ascension from Cornell grad student to head winemaker at Cuca Spring, and the fact that he doesn't use any barrels in his red wine program, old or new, but that he does use them for his rosé and his white wines, um, including the Gerberstraminer that just won the Governor's Cup. So that's called the Inside Winemaking Podcast with Jim Duane. So just go wherever you get your podcasts and uh, search for it. Um, and like I said, even if you don't listen to other episodes, um, the one with August is really cool. Uh, August is a great storyteller and a great guy, so uh, definitely go check it out. The other podcast, and this is the one that I'm even more jazzed about, I can't believe I just said jazz, um, is called Interpreting Wine. And this is one you should definitely subscribe to, at least for the short term. Um, host Lawrence Francis, who's from London, has already um, published a handful of episodes with Long Island winemakers like Chang Daughters, Chris Tracy, Pominox, Green Masood, and Roman Roth from Wolfer. And he has a bunch of other New York winemakers and wine folks lined up for upcoming episodes. Um, in the coming days and weeks, he has episodes with Mark Snyder from Red Hook Winery, John Martini from Anthony Road Wine Company, Josh Wig from Lamoureux Landing, Phil Davis and Phil Iris from Damiani Wine Cellars, and many more. I like his podcast a lot because the podcasts are under 30 minutes each, so you can really bang through them fairly quickly. Um, and he really lets um, the people he's interviewing you know, lead the way and do most of the talking, unlike this episode that I'm recording right now, where it's just me. Um, who, uh, yeah, I mean, a month or so ago, I was actually invited uh, to go into New York City and meet with Lawrence, um, but I couldn't. So uh, who knows? Maybe there would have been an episode with me uh, this month, but uh, I missed that chance. It doesn't really matter, though, because I'm going to have him on my podcast after his New York series concludes. I really want to just sit down with him and talk about, you know, beyond what we heard on his, on his sessions, what, what his thoughts are about the people he met and the wines he tasted along the way. Um, the podcast is Interpreting Wine, so go ahead and check it out and definitely subscribe to that one. Um, he, like, he's done a really nice job. And actually, I actually went, went back through his archives, and uh, he's actually spoken to some of my favorite winemakers from Europe as well. So definitely one to check out. And I guess while I'm encouraging you to subscribe to podcasts, I should probably say what every other podcaster says at the end of his or her podcast. Please go and subscribe to, to The Cork Report as well. Um, it's actually available on all the, the main platforms these days, you know, Google, Apple. It's actually even on Spotify. That just happened fairly recently. So go ahead and subscribe, and uh, we'll hope to talk to you soon. Like I said, hopefully we'll get Carlo back soon as well, and uh, we'll get back on a regular schedule. So thank you very much, and have a good day.